Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start now with the David Eby government here wading into this fight over the Kitsilano Supportive Housing Tower. Wow, what a battle there's been over this project here. Now, this is the 13-story high-rise here, homeless housing tower approved by the city. It is planned for Arbutus and 8th Avenue and Kits, 129 units for people who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless. Fierce opposition to this project. Now the government intervening here at the provincial level. There was a court case to try and delay the approval of this project. And the B.C. government now has stepped in to clear the tracks, overruling this court action here. Have a listen to David Eby here now. He's a big supporter of the project. Here's what he had to say about it. I'm hopeful that we can address these concerns. And, and generally we find, uh, after they've been open for a few months and, and things settled out at the site, that... People don't notice uh, the buildings. They they really blend in nicely, and uh, there are obviously some exceptions to that. Okay, so he says w- people shouldn't worry about this. It will just blend in nicely, and there will be no problems. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Colleen Hardwick, former Vancouver City Councillor, former candidate for mayor. Very pleased to welcome her back. Colleen, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for the opportunity, Mike. Yeah, you bet. You voted against this project, right? Yes, I did. Okay, tell me why. Well, at the time, um, there were two key uh, things to me. One was the physical form. You've got to realize that this is just 18 meters across the street from the St. Augustine's Elementary School. Uh, So the physical built form, which was um, anticipated, was too tall, too dense, inadequate setbacks from the road, access issues, shadowing issues, loss of green space. So what was going to be built on it was completely inconsistent with the rest of of the area and poses problems. But the second problem was the composition of the residents. This was congregate housing, which is where you're putting a bunch of vulnerable people into that space, 129 units. But it's right across from um, er another house that's there with women fleeing violence um, and and, uh, going through rehab recovery, and as I mentioned earlier, right across the school. So between the composition of the residents and the physical built form, not to mention the the lack of proper consultation, um, I I voted against it at the time. But the problem now is not just the fact that, that this is an inappropriate development at this location, but the fact that the province is overruling the people's ability to uh, lodge a court case against it. Right, and uh, right. where I come yeah. from, that's anti-democratic. That is, is autocratic and saying, we are not going to listen to the people. We're just going to do whatever we want. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen something like that. The courts are supposed to be independent. Now, there was a neighborhood group opposed to this tower, had gone to court seeking an injunction to delay this project, and now the provincial government has stepped in here, effectively overruling this legal action, clear the way for this tower. And you heard that clip there from Premier David Eby. He's a big supporter of this project. Let me play a clip here for you, Colleen, B.C. Housing Minister Ravi Kalon on this, speaking a short time ago to our, our own Simi Sarah here on why the government is taking this action. Let's listen. you got people sleeping in Vanier Park. 
mere blocks away from where this uh, project uh, is being proposed and having to wait years and years, get an approval, and then find out that we have to wait more years uh, is just not acceptable when you're in a major housing crisis. Okay, so he says there is a housing crisis, there are homeless people in the neighborhood anyway, sleeping in a nearby park, and he doesn't want to have it delayed for years. we got to get going and build this. What do you think of that? And we've heard this rhetoric over and over again. There are choices. There are other forms of of supportive housing that could be put in that location. It doesn't need to be um, the the, uh, high barrier groups that they're talking about here. There are, again, women and families, all sorts of different compositions of of uh, the types of people that could live in this facility. And again, uh, it was discussed at the time of the public hearing that it would be focused on homeless Kitsilano residents, although I'm hearing a very different story coming out now suggesting that it would come from the downtown east side and and favor First Nations uh, folks. So there's an inconsistent approach here, and I would also point to uh, the fact that this particular development is to be built by um, a company that manufactures this kind of of high-rise modular housing that's connected to former mayor uh, Gregor Robertson. But putting aside that aspect of it, um, there are choices that can be made. No one's saying don't develop this piece of property. No one's saying don't develop it into supportive housing. But this particular composition is inconsistent and detrimental to the immediate area. So that we have choices about this, but um, notwithstanding our concerns, as I described earlier, about the the built form and the composition of conjugate housing, which, by the way, is like saying, I want to I'm I'm a smoker and I want to quit smoking. So I'm going to move into a building where 129 people smoke and think that I'm going to, um, you know, Stop smoking. It's it's it is a form of congregate housing which has been demonstrated to to be not working. Speaking but of former, ultimately the largest concern has got to be this fact that the provincial government thinks that they can just overrule the, and and remove the ability of residents to go to the courts to adjudicate mm-hmm. something like this. And once you set a precedent for this, look out Vancouver and look out British Columbia, because once this precedent is established, it is going to um, play itself out everywhere. Former Vancouver City Councillor Colleen Hardwick is is my guest. Uh, Colleen, let me play another clip here for you. We've talked about this project on the show before. And when, let me play an, a clip we got on our buzz line. This is a listener call. And I think it kind of goes to the heart of, of one of the issues here, because a lot of people who, who support this project and are listening to you this morning will say, well, hang on, this is, this is just nimbyism here. This is like, we don't want homeless people in our little Kitsilano neighborhood here. Leave us alone, put them somewhere else. So have a listen to this call to our buzz line here, and then I'll get your thoughts on it. The people who are opposed to the project really simply don't want poor people in their neighborhood, but they can't come right out and say that in a city council meeting, so they skirt around the issue and they sugarcoat what they're trying to say, and they just make up phony excuses when you could just tell that they simply don't want homeless people in their neighborhood. Colleen, what do you say to that? Nonsense. Pure and simple. There is no question that there can be supportive housing built on this particular location and that it can be built in such a way 
from a built form perspective that is is not going to be as destructive. But moreover, there are choices. You don't need to build, you know, 129 single room occupancies in a conjugate living environment. But my point is, notwithstanding all that, you just wait till the next and the next and the next. And what this is saying to the people of Vancouver and the people of British Columbia is you can't stand up and for your neighbor, your neighborhoods, you can't go to the courts because the, the provincial government is taking an autocratic, top-down, we are going to do this whether you like it or not position. And uh, I think that is unconscionable, it's undemocratic, and it's scary. Pauline Hardwick, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. Well, thank you. And again, people, you've got to wake up. This, this is not, this is, this is obviously a very controversial instance or case, but the larger implications about the government being able to shove these things through without having any kind of, of court process yeah. and, and castigating neighborhoods, people who used, used to think it was good to be neighborly and, and engage with your neighborhoods, and now everybody's being derided as NIMBYs, which, by the way, was a term that was developed by, by property development interests out of California. And now this is being used to discourage people from any kind of democratic participation, and we should be very concerned about this. Okay, we continue talking about the B.C. government intervening now in this fight over that Kitsilano homeless housing tower here. It had been approved by the previous city council. Neighborhood activists went to court to try and block it. The province has stepped in here now, blocking the court action uh, to allow the project to proceed. Let's check in with Dr. Julian Summers now, addictions researcher, Simon Fraser University. Very pleased to welcome him back. Dr. Summers, thanks for coming on. Great to be with you, Mike. Okay, you've been critical of this project. Can you tell me why? Yeah, um, so I've, I've been working in this in this this area, starting at Riverview Hospital in the mid '80s, and over the ensuing decades, there's a huge amount of research that's been done showing how to help people that are deemed the hardest to house. They tend to have serious mental illnesses. They are likely to have been in our foster care system, and it involves providing places for them that they get to choose and where they're well-supported to become members of our communities and all our communities. We have needs around the province, and this has been clearly shown through published evidence that there are hot spots, if I can use that term, um, where people are concentrated, living with serious mental illnesses and homelessness. And we spent about $120 million to conduct the world's largest experiments investigating comparatively what works best to help people? The results are in. And the province, when presented with this evidence and, and work done over 20 years using uh, a, basically information from the province, one week after hearing the results, this was about a year and a half ago, uh, sent, sent SFU a letter saying, destroy the database. They, and, and since then, we've seen audits. They, they're, they're chastised for, for uh, huge spending, limited accountability, no transparency. And what they're choosing to spend on is an approach that has been shown to be inferior and also not what the vast majority of people choose as a form of housing. So why are they doing this? It looks like they're doing it because it makes, it makes money and uh, because it involves very minimal change to the status quo. But we have to change the status quo. Why, why does it not 
work in your opinion like the the government is saying this would be supportive housing so yeah these are people clearly with a lot of specialized needs so we're talking people who are homeless or in poverty mental illness drug addiction but the government is saying look we're not leaving people on their own we're not just warehousing people in there and say you're on your own there will be supportive services in there to help people why why would that not work go ahead have we heard that before? Like, have we have we heard that before? Did we hear that around Marguerite Ford? No, no, no. It's all this is this time is different, right? Read read the successful bid from the MPA Society to operate the building. Do a quick search on that document and see how many times the word "mental" appears in the document. I'll spare you the trouble. Zero. There are no supports. So the, the supports the the, the the critical path leading to social reintegration recognizes the people exiting the streets have had no one in their corner typically their entire lives that's really what sets them apart not the mental illness or even the poverty but that combined with no way forward they they want 82 percent want to resume paid work two-thirds have worked in in full-time positions for at least one year at some point in the past 25% have kids that they want to be connected to. These are powerful sources of motivation for people who on average are in their 30s. This building doesn't even allow kids. It's concentrating people together and in randomized trials when some people are put in a building altogether, much like this one, but actually in our case with very rich supports, a million plus per year in on-site human resources. And when that's compared to people who are given the same services, but choices of housing where they get to become dispersed in neighborhoods, and that's what they choose, the results are black and white. Crime in the congregate building um, medical emergencies are no different than among people who remain homeless. While people who are who cho- choose their housings, they now have something to fight for, something to live for. Crime is 71% lower in that setting than in, than in usual care, and medical emergencies are cut in half. Emergency department visits are cut in half. So we, we have very strong evidence. This government is showing absolute disdain for changing what they're doing, they want to eliminate uh, accountability, and they want to, and they're ramming this through. They dis- they yeah. decide on their own to change the law so mm-hmm. that this can happen. It's I mean it, it it's it's becoming increasingly outrageous. Okay, Dr. Summers, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. Pleasure, Mike. Okay, here we go now with the latest on the CBC versus. Twitter. Now, this all started when Twitter decided to apply basically a warning label on CBC content on the site. So they slapped a label on the CBC Twitter page, government funded media, government funded media, CBC not happy about that. They say that questions their editorial integrity. They have effectively quit Twitter. So they say they're putting a pause on their Twitter activities. I mean, a lot of people get their news on, on Twitter, including CBC content. I know you, I use it a lot, uh, quite frequently. All right. This, uh, earlier, the federal conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, had actually written a letter to Twitter asking them to do this. And after Twitter did it, uh, the conservatives here quite pleased about it. Have a listen to Andrew Shearer here, conservative MP, of course, the former party leader in the House of Commons. 
are some simple facts that should not be controversial. Water is wet, Saskatchewan is cold in the winter, and the CBC is funded by the government. None of that should freak anybody out. But in Liberal Ottawa, pearls are being clutched and outrage manufactured, all because for greater transparency, Twitter applied the government-funded media tag to the CBC's account. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Peter Menzies. Peter is a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, former vice chair of the CRTC, a former publisher of the Calgary Herald newspaper. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Peter, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hey, thank you, Michael. Hope you have okay. a good one. I hope so, too. Thanks for doing it. Okay, Peter, what do you make of this now? Because I guess there's sort of two ways to look at this. A lot of people will look at what Twitter has done here, government-funded media, and just say, well, isn't that just stating a fact? They are government-funded media. What do you think? I think that's pretty much the case. I mean, they are government-funded government media. They exist through an act of parliament. I understand that they feel they don't want to be looked at upon as partisan, but that said, their you know their their enabling legislation uh, describes their mandate, which uh, you know might be inoffensive, but nevertheless it does tell them what they're supposed to do, and it does indicate that they are ultimately accountable through the heritage minister to parliament. So uh, yeah, <laughs> they're government funded. That's that's pretty much yeah. it. And I guess it, I, I, I guess really if, don't understand why it's such a big deal. Well, I guess if it stopped at that, I mean, you, I think it's just basically plain common sense that yeah, of course they're they're a media organization. Yeah, they are funded by government. But if you take a look at how Twitter actually defines this designation, so Twitter defines this. So this is officially coming from the, the media platform, the social media platform itself. It says any media organization that gets this definition on their site means that they may have varying degrees of government involvement over editorial content. That's quoting to what, directly from the Twitter website. Government like, involvement well, over editorial content. The, Go ahead. Yeah, like as I just described, the, the legislation uh, gives, I mean, I mean if you, just to be clear, nobody's assigning stories on a daily basis, but you know, and we can get into into semantics here and that sort of stuff, but there's no question that the CBC exists through legislation. Uh, it gets licensed by the CRTC, which in its last licensing hearing quite literally told them that they had to spend 30% of their independent production funds on uh, LGBTQ and, and BIPOC and other underserved groups, which, you know, I mean, we we might all agree with that. Um, and we might all think those are all good things and harmless things, but they nevertheless are things. Um, so they do indicate some level of government involvement that doesn't exist uh, for other media. You guys, too, get a license that tells you how many minutes of news you're going to do and how many minutes of music you might do if you were a different radio station and what kind of music you're going to play and that sort of stuff. Again, that doesn't need to be something anybody's shy about, but it's something that's real and that it exists. I mean, the CBC could have just got up and said, yep, we are government yeah. funded. We've been that way for 75 years and we're proud of it. We're, we've been serving Canadians well and we do a damn good job and that and move on. Yeah, I think 
actually, maybe that's what CBC should have done here. Like, I think maybe what the a better way, instead of sort of taking your ball and going home and just quitting Twitter, would have been just take this one on the chin and, and say, okay, you know, Twitter has done this to us, but whatever, we're going to continue on doing what we're doing here. Uh, let me play a clip here for you from the Prime Minister and get your thoughts. Now, Pierre Polyev, the Conservative leader, uh, very pleased that Twitter has done this. And Polyev has also vowed to defund the CBC, defund it. Here is Justin Trudeau here speaking on this topic yesterday, and I'll get your thoughts. CBC Radio-Canada uh, serves right across the country, delivers local news and local content in many regions of the country by attacking this Canadian institution, attacking the culture and local content that is so important to so many Canadians uh, really indicates uh, the values and the approach that Mr. Polyev is putting forward. Okay, as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, I'm speaking to Peter Menzies here, McDonald Laurier Institute. Peter, what do you think of the Prime Minister's reaction here? Well, I think the, C <laughs> the CBC has found itself in a position where both sides are weaponizing it and Twitter and the debate for political gain. And that's the last thing any media organization, the last position any media organization wants to find itself in. I mean, I don't understand where the CBC, I mean, Poiliev here, you know, he's taking advantage of this. Twitter has been doing this across the world. They haven't just picked on CBC. Um, I'm guessing he knew that seeing them do it with BBC, seeing them do ABC in Australia, seeing them do it in Sweden, New Zealand, uh, NP, National Public Radio in the, in, in, in the U.S., yeah. he thought he'd throw something in and try to take credit for it in terms of, in terms of that sort of decision. But this, is, this has been a, a Twitter practice all along. What's kind of shocking with CBC is how poorly they've managed their brand, you know, in, in this in, in, in recent weeks and months and years for that matter. I mean, the last three conservative leaders have all won their position as leader with a platform saying defund the CBC. It's a pretty popular approach for, for you know, it's red meat for the conservative masses, right? Yeah. It, you'd think that CBC might take that seriously and figure out, you know, how they can make that stop happening, right? Why is that happening, how they can make it stop? I mean, they literally sued these guys during an election campaign, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did you think that was going to, resonate their president uh, a few weeks ago was speaking publicly about you know uh, fundraising by the tories because of pierre paulette now i mean they could be right in all that but you got to manage your brand a little bit better right yeah, it's yeah. You, you should never be the center of the story and now they're going to find themselves being this the center of a campaign they're trying to cover in the next federal election Right, right. And I think this this will obviously be a, an issue in the next campaign for sure, because it's such a, a clear wedge issue here now between the Conservatives and the Liberals. Let me play a clip here for you from the Conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, who has said he will defund the CBC. So here he is talking about that. Then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Polyev. It's a colossal waste of money, over a billion dollars uh, for a bloated uh, corporation that is becoming increasingly just a, a communications bureau for the PM, PMO. Uh, so I will defund CBC and I will have specific policy proposals to achieve that. Okay. 
I'm not sure he will follow through on that on that promise if he does become prime minister. Because aren't there, Peter? Aren't there a lot of sort of small towns, rural rural Canada, that rely on the CBC for local news? Or no? What are your thoughts? Well, there used to be, but one of the interesting developments, uh, for sure, right? Uh, I mean, and I do think. I actually I didn't think they were going to follow through on this, but now I think they actually are. I think they actually want to in terms of that. And there are lots of things just focusing on that, though, I think is a mistake because there are lots of things that need to change about the CBC. And one of them is the disruptive force it's playing in the current news media marketplace, where it's basically, you know, being funded to put newspapers out of business. Now, in terms of those small local markets, yes, the CBC traditionally has served those, you know, outside of uh, those communities outside of major areas. But these days, most people are gathering their news or a great many more and more people are gathering their news online. And local radio stations have all set up their own websites, which are also kind of like many newspapers. Right. So when you look at the major media market. No wonder newspapers are dying because there's like 750 radio commercial radio stations in Canada. Almost every one of them now has a, a website, which is like a mini newspaper. No wonder the local weekly newspaper has died because it can't compete for digital revenue with a, with a broadcasting company. And then there's the CBC that's been competing for, for digital revenue in terms of that. So taking the CBC, if you want to defund the CBC, Tell them they can't take advertising anymore, so companies mm. like yours aren't paying your taxes to support your competition. Yeah. yeah, right. Okay, Peter, very interesting insights on it. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. Hey, uh, my pleasure. I, anytime. All right, let's talk about academic integrity and cheating at colleges, universities, high schools. And we're talking about artificial intelligence, AI, especially chat GPT. A lot of people are familiar. They've heard about this program. This is the one that can do a kid's homework, write tests, write a custom essay. And it does it accurately, quickly. And it's also free. Man, how many students are using this thing now? Chat GPT. Everyone I talk to says, wow, this thing it just works amazingly well. It's very frustrating for teachers, university professors, schools, school administrators. How do they keep up with this now? If a kid submits an essay that's been written by this program, how do you tell? How do you tell if it hasn't if it's been written by an AI program? It's almost like a technological arms race going on now. As schools, universities, colleges try to figure out a way to detect work that has been written by this program. Chat GPT. Let's have a listen here to this report from CNN. Educators across the country are raising the alarm over a new technology that is making it easier to cheat. It's called ChatGPT. It's a chatbot that runs on artificial intelligence, and it can do pretty much anything you tell it to do, from solving a complex math problem to writing essays on nearly any topic. It's really a new form of an old problem 
where students would pay somebody or get somebody to write their paper for them, say an essay form or a friend who's taken a course before. This is like that, only it's instantaneous and free. Instantaneous and it's free. And this is why it's also extremely popular. Now, check out what's going on at the University of Victoria. The university now acknowledging they have an internal inquiry underway into academic integrity. Uh, lots of reports of potential cheating by students. Are they using this program to submit essays, submit work that was not done by them? It's done by chat GPT instead. Have a listen to University of Victoria professor Stephen Ross here talking to Czech TV News in Victoria. I think people are genuinely freaked out about it. It's a completely new kind of cheating, <laughs> to be honest, and uh, and it seems to be kind of uncatchable. The problem is no one knows how widespread it is, and it's not clear that there's going to be any good way to figure out how widespread it is. Okay, call me on the buzz line on this one today. I'd love to hear from teachers on this. I'd love to hear from students. I've talked to lots of teachers at all levels, whether it's high school, college, university. Phone me on the open line on it and let me know what you think. 604-280-9898 is the number to call me. 604-280-9898. There's kind of two sides to it, too, because I've heard from people who say that, well, if you are using this program to straight up write an essay that you then submit under your own name as your own work, well, that's like straight up cheating. But what about using it just as a, an, a learning aid or an assistant just to help you research a, a topic? What if it you just help... It helps you to come up with some suggestions for an essay or a presentation. Is that cheating? Let me know. If you are a student, I would love to hear from some students on this. Maybe you're a high school or university college student. Are you using chat GPT? How does it work? Does it work well for you? Please call me and let me know, okay? 604-280-9898 is the number to call me. And how can schools, universities, colleges deal with this? What should be the rule on using AI, artificial intelligence, at school? Some people think that we should just say, let's just use it. Let's just allow it. Let's check in with one of Canada's leading experts on it now, Sarah Eaton, Associate Professor, University of Calgary, Editor-in-Chief, International Journal for Educational Integrity. And it's always great to have her on. Sarah, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks so much for the invitation to join you. You bet. And we're just hearing about the situation at the University of Victoria. We just heard from a professor there who says, yeah, that he's seeing a lot of it, doesn't know how they can catch it. What are you hearing, Sarah? You've got your finger on the pulse on this one for sure. How big of an issue is this becoming now? Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is that it's becoming pretty much impossible to detect uh, writing that's done with ChatGPT or any other artificial intelligence application. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of us starting to ask ourselves, is this really something that we need to try and catch? I mean, these apps are available to the general public. They're used by industry. Like, do we kind of need to think about, is this actually cheating? And I think the jury's out on that. Yeah, because I'm hearing the same thing. Like, if it's so difficult to detect, maybe, you know, if, if you can't beat them, maybe you should join them. But aren't they developing some computers? Aren't there computer programs available that can sort of do the other, 
reverse engineer it and detect whether essays have been written by AI? Well, potentially, but part of the problem is that when you use an app like this, you can say cut and paste the content that it generates into a Word document, then you can massage it, you can edit it. So the output in the end isn't entirely written by a human, and it's not entirely written by an AI. And so the detection is like, what are we actually detecting? And there's also been some news reports about these detection tools that have falsely accused students, and that's an even bigger problem. Oh, Oh, really? So sometimes it will say, hey, you used an AI program to write this essay when maybe they they didn't do that. Exactly. False okay. positives. Yeah. Oh. So there's a lot of that going on. So some of these detection tools aren't quite as good as the, you know, the marketing says. Yeah. What are Canadian universities saying, like from university administrators? You know, here in, in the University of Victoria, there's an internal review going on into academic integrity here. Apparently, a lot of kids here using chat GPT, chat GPT. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise that kids are using us. I mean, I got one kid in university, another kid in high school, and yeah, they know all about they know all about this program. So every kid does, don't they? Yeah, I think every <laughs> kid does. Lots of adults do, too. Lots of people are experimenting yeah. and trying it. I've tried them. And, you know, I've, I found that it really simplifies some of my work. In some cases, it, it does make up things, so you have to double-check. You have to do your fact-checking. It can make up references. It's not foolproof. Um, but if you use it as, like, a starting point to generate a draft, sometimes it does a pretty good darn job. Yeah. So I, think, I think there's actually a place for it, right? And, like, trying to figure out, have kids used this? Have kids not used it? I think a better question is, how do we teach them to use it? Because soon, this technology is going to be fully integrated into Microsoft Word, Google Docs, and every other writing program out there. Okay, that's really fascinating to hear your take on it in that in that regard, because I guess, well, what about a situation like this, though? Let's say you have a kid who's been assigned to write an essay on a, a novel or something that's been assigned in an English class, and the student says, I'm just, I'm not going to read the book, I'm just going to ask ChatGPT to write my essay for me, do, and not even lift a finger. That's cheating, isn't it, if they submit that under their own name? Yes. Um, I would say in that case, yes, because assessments are supposed to show what kids have actually learned. But in the other, on the other hand, this is just like a modern or updated version of that same kid 20 years ago that would say to their friend, or, hey, do you have this that you did in the same class last year? Can I, just, can I just borrow your essay or getting their sibling to write it? So the kids who are really determined not to do their own work, they're going to find a way, and they always have. Yeah. Okay, it's a red-hot issue here in academia for sure. So where do you think this is heading now? I mean, all universities, colleges, they're trying to figure out how to deal with this. Have any universities in Canada actually banned it? Have they banned ChatGPT anywhere? Not as far as I know. Uh, There might be some out there, but kind of the word on the street that I'm hearing want to be able to um, take a, take uh, a little bit of the, the lay of the land, if you will, figure out what's going on with this and figure out how we can actually use it. Because uh, in countries like Singapore, they've mandated there that every single civil servant must learn how to use ChatGPT for their job. So you've wow. got some countries where it's really progressive and governments are mandating the use of it, other countries where it's banned. Canada, I think, is kind of somewhere in the middle. We haven't banned it. We haven't, you know, fully endorsed it. I think we're just taking that usual Canadian middle-of-the-road approach and seeing where the chips are going to fall over time. 
Right. Would you say that, you know, the genie is kind of out of the bottle here, that this particular program, ChatGPT, has gotten so good, they've refined the artificial intelligence to such a degree, a lot of people I hear say it works terrific. So, you know, if it works that well, and it's probably only going to get better, is, is, there, is there a point where you just say, well, you know, you can't beat them, so we got to join them? Yeah, I think you're right on the money well, here, because ChatGPT is just... It's just one product. There's yeah. literally hundreds of other apps out there. Some of them buy the same company. Other other companies are in on the in on it as now you know as well. Um, there's so many different products out there. I think the best known one is ChatGPT, but it is by no means the only one. And there's new apps being developed every day. So when you say, "Do we uh, not try and beat them, but join them?" You're right yeah. on the money. Yeah, but do you think though there's a risk that we turn our kids into like lazy learners? They're they're not benefiting from the education that the way they should if they if they're relying too much on this these AI programs. Yeah, you know, you look back in history, the same argument was made when um, when of all things the radio was invented, and then the television, uh-huh. and then the internet. I don't think kids are any stupider today than they were before the television. It's just that they learn differently and they've got different tools at their disposal. Like nowadays, we wouldn't tell kids that they can't use without, they can't live without the TV or the radio or the internet. Um, So it's just, this is evolution. Yeah. Okay. We're following it closely. Thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Thanks so much. All right. Talking about chat GPT, cheating at school. Is it cheating? Lots of calls here. Matt in Burnaby. Hi, Matt. Go ahead. Oh, hi there. I'm a chemistry lab instructor at a local university, and um, I've seen students trying to use ChatGPT, but for chemistry, it usually just gives incorrect information. So they should they should not be relying on it yet. <laughs> okay, what do you tell your students? Don't use it? Um, I've told them not to use it, and I've flat out told them that uh, it's giving wrong information, so that kind of shakes them up a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, if it's giving wrong information, it kind of defeats the purpose. Thank you, Matt. Let's go to yep. Kay in Vancouver. Hi, Kay. What do you think? Hi, Mike. Yes, uh, this, this cheating programs or apps uh, may be convenient to get the good grades. However, the student would be inept with their knowledge and not qualified, and that might catch up with them later in their career. Yeah. Yeah, that's my fear too. Like, I guess you may be cheating, but maybe at the end of the day, you're cheating yourself, right? If you're not, if you're not learning properly, if you're relying too much on these programs. Thanks for the call, Jason and Kamloops. Hi, Jason. What do you think? Hey, Mike. Um, and I'm being serious when I say this, but I think how you could tell when people are using this is the spelling would be correct. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's almost too good, right? Too perfect. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well. They are trying to figure out how to detect it. And there are programs being developed to detect when artificial intelligence has been used. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who's winning here. It seems like chat GPT is winning here. Steve in Nanaimo. Hi, Steve. What do you think? Hi, Mike. I think you put your finger on it. Um, There is a real cost. And uh, there's a cost to uh, an issue in terms of strength of character. There's a cost to the sense of, uh, of fairness of accomplishment and um, just the joys of overcoming, uh, you know, the struggle for excellence in, in your academics. And I just want to say that, um, you know, you just mentioned at the beginning of the show that you have a, 
a young person in university. I've had to graduate and and I graduated from the, the U of C and instructed there for a little while. I just want to say that, you know, it'll come from the parents, right? I'm sure that yeah. you'll have this conversation or have had some kind of conversation with your child about uh, about just, you know, accomplishing things, um, knowing that sometimes it doesn't go as well as you want on an exam, but just keep in there and doing it and doing it on your own. And in the end, I want to know as I cross the bridge over the Nanaimo Parkway, that the engineer that built it yeah. knows their stuff. So yeah. thanks very yeah. much. Really important conversation. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for the call. Well, we, I, we have had a family discussion on this at our house as it happens, and I've asked my son about it. He's a university student, and uh, he's very familiar, he's familiar with the program, and I asked him if he's used it to, to put in assignments, and he, sa- he said no, because, and he said the main reason is he knows people who have been caught. And if you put in an assignment that's a big portion of your final mark and you get a fail on it, I mean, you've maybe blown that whole course. So, no, he has not used it to submit any work. He did tell me he has used it as part of, like, research, if he's doing some research, but he hasn't used it to actually write a paper. And I I certainly believe him on that. Shannon in Cloverdale. Shannon, you got 30 seconds here. Hi. Um, Well, I loved what your guest had to say. And I think listening to the other callers today, we older folks need to remember and be reminded that our educational system needs to catch up with technology. And this is the world our kids are going to live and work in in the future. It's yep. hard for us to relate, but we do need to have some parental involvement. And there needs to be some sort of compromise, I think, between AI chat gbt technology and our current educational system which i think is failing all right let's talk about the historic settlement now between fox news and dominion voting systems it follows the fox news reports that dominion and its voting machines were involved in a plot to steal the 2020 U.S. election. Wow, what a massive settlement this is. we got Reggie Cicchini standing by. First, have a listen to this report from CBS News. Blockbuster settlement in the lawsuit accusing Fox News of airing lies related to the 2020 election. Fox and Dominion Voting Systems avoided a trial, agreeing to one of the largest settlements in any defamation case in American history. The voting machine company will collect more than $787 million. However, Fox News will not have to make an apology on its air. All right, let's discuss this case now with my guest, Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Reggie, thanks for taking the time. Good morning. Okay, Reggie, your thoughts on this settlement here. I guess you could see this one coming here, especially when the in the final hours leading toward the trial, the trial, the start of the trial was delayed. Like, oh, here comes the settlement. Your thoughts? I mean, yeah, there were there were conversations about settlements that had started to sprout up in uh, the hours even leading up to the day before the trial was expected to begin. Uh, And interestingly enough, it was the Wall Street Journal that had put some of that reporting out there. Obviously, the Wall Street Journal is under the Fox umbrella and the delays that we had seen yesterday. There were conversations again that maybe it had to do with technical delays, but the settlement agreement uh, was mildly expected. But at the same time, uh, 
it also wasn't expected. Uh, Dominion was expected to kind of take this courtroom uh, and try to lay out its case to to argue that Fox News uh, had been defaming it. But the settlement, you know, popped up. It, it abruptly ended the trial before it even began. And here we are now with one of, if not the largest defamation settlements involving a media outlet in American history. Yeah, okay, 787 million U.S., so we're talking over a billion dollars Canadian here. Wow. Let's have a listen to the CEO of the company here, Dominion Voting Systems. This is John Poulos, and I'll get your thoughts. Fox has admitted to telling lies about Dominion. We have sought accountability and believe the evidence brought to light through this case underscores the consequences of spreading lies. Truthful reporting in the media is essential to our democracy. Okay, boy, this is a big settlement. And yeah, obviously, I guess Fox News sort of takes it on the chin here, but they don't have to apologize, though, Reggie. And, and uh, you know, I think the question needs to be raised, is Fox actually taking this on the chin? They put out a statement yesterday saying, quote, we acknowledge the court's ruling, uh, finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. And that is the extent to what Fox had said about all of this, um, you know, the allegations of defamation that were being made by Dominion. They summed it up in, in one sentence saying that certain claims about Dominion were false. Wow. But what that means now is they don't need to go on air. There will be no mea culpa. There will be no embarrassment from having to have Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or Rupert Murdoch take the stand in a trial. So does Fox News, did they take it on the chin when they can essentially just turn the page and walk away from this? And ultimately, look, $787 million, it's less than the $1.6 billion that Dominion had been seeking, but it is also just a fraction of what Fox is worth and what it brings in on an annual basis when it comes to re uh, ad revenue. Oh, that's a great point. And is there any indication that this has hurt Fox in any substantial way? I mean, their, their ratings don't seem to have gone down. No, I mean, you know, ratings haven't gone down, but, you know, a part of that is Fox's base. Their their their, their opinions uh, are, are pretty baked in and nothing is really going to change that. Um, you know, the former president, as much as he pushes back on Fox News and, and complains about some of its coverage, he sat down with Tucker Carlson last week for an interview on a wide range of, of issues. So, I mean, there is still a bit of a love-in between the former president and his base and Fox News. Um, and, and yesterday, even when this happened, it didn't really impact Fox's market value uh, when it came to stock prices. So, you know, if this is just, you know, page turned, case closed on Dominion, Fox is going to walk away. The problem is Fox is now going to turn away and walk into several other potential lawsuits that it is facing, including one that is going to start up from another voting technology company. Yeah, I want to get your take on that uh, in just a moment here for sure. Speaking to Reggie Cicchini here, Global News Washington correspondent, the historic settlement here between Fox News, Dominion Voting Systems. And yeah, it doesn't seem to have hurt Fox. I mean, they still can they had Donald Trump on, like you said. But I'm wondering how people in the Republican Party feel about this this whole thing. Let's have a listen to Brad Raffensperger here, who is the Secretary of State in Georgia, a lifelong Republican. And you'll hear him talk about the impacts on the Republican Party. Then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. It's now in the rep court record that the people that went on Fox News, their, their people, Fox employees, knew that none of those allegations were supported by the facts. And yet they were repeating them. And what that really did is just really, it's not just about dominion, it's really about our social fabric. 
It really ripped apart America, and it really ripped apart my Republican Party. Okay, did it rip apart the Republican Party, though? Reggie, your thoughts? Well, I mean, look... Brad Raffensperger is intimately, uh, you know, in tune with and aware of false claims about election fraud because he is one of the highest members of the Republican Party in Georgia. And Georgia uh, is facing a, uh, you know, a, a political legal clash uh, when it comes to accusations and allegations of trying to, you know, overturn the election based on what Donald Trump did and the phone call he had with Raffensperger. So so he yeah. understands as Secretary of State what can happen when, uh, you know, lies get out of control uh, and they run up against a truth that is not going to budge. Did this, you know, impact or will this have an impact on the Republican Party? Probably not, because once again, you still have members of Congress that are sitting members of Congress that buy into that narrative that the election was stolen, that Joe Biden is some kind of fraudulent uh, president, despite the fact that all of the facts simply, um, you know, go against that. So regardless of whatever happened yesterday with Fox and with Dominion, again, people whose views are baked in, they are not going to change. Okay, you mentioned as well that this isn't over for Fox. I mean, you've got the Fox settlement here now with Dominion voting systems, but could that give some leverage in some of these these other legal actions like Smartmatic? Tell me about Smartmatic here, Reggie. Sure, it's a London, it's 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 a, it's a European-based uh, uh, company that was essentially a rival to Dominion, but Fox News and hosts and guests on Fox News and people within Trump's legal circle equated them to be in partnership or cahoots with Dominion uh, and yeah. were involved, apparently, according to them, uh, in you know trying to change votes and and take things away from Donald Trump to give them to Joe Biden. Obviously, none of that was backed up by any kind of fact, and now. This company is suing Fox News for $2.7 billion. We don't know if this is going to result in a settlement, but if it does, the question will be, does this company uh, force Fox News to go on air and make some kind of um, you know, statement that they were you know bogus and 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 wrong in all of their um all of their commentary and all of their their allegations made against this company that's something to obviously wait wow. and watch nothing has been set for that court date yet but again it could have a significant financial impact on fox just like this one did okay we'll follow that one with interest reggie thank you for coming on today thanks Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.